Hey y'all, I'm Nicolaus Padoni. And I'm Guilherme Foscolo. Welcome to Joystick Philosophy, a podcast at the crossroads of gaming culture, philosophy, and media. In today's episode, we had the pleasure of talking to Grant Tevenor, a philosophy professor at Lincoln University in New Zealand and author of seminal works in the field of video games, virtual reality, and aesthetics. We had a blast discussing topics such as video games, VR, and other digital technologies as fiction machines. We also explored his contributions, such as contemporary picturing media or devices that enhance perception. So increase the treadmill speed and stay with us. Professor Tevener, it's welcome. It's a pleasure to um, have you here to discuss video games, virtual reality and aesthetics. Um, Guilherme and I had a great time reading uh, last week, uh, going through your books, The Art of Video Games from 2009 and the newest one, uh, The Aesthetics of Virtual Reality from uh, 2021. And it was very interesting that those two books, despite the 10 years gap between them, connect and relate to each other. So to start our conversation, I would say it would be interesting to address um, definitions again. So do you think we could start by discussing how exactly you defined video games and um, and virtual reality and maybe how those two things would relate? Okay, so um, I attempted to define video games in the first book and maybe, you know, over a decade has gone by now and a lot of water has gone under the bridge and I'm not really sure I agree with that definition anymore. What I said at that time is that you can take a disjunctive form of a definition, which is an either or. You know, maybe um, uh, video games aren't a monolithic thing. Rather, they, they fall down two general paths, um, being either interactive fictions or games. And so I think what I said that um, something is a video game if it's um, in a digital uh, video format um, and it employs the structures either of uh, interactive fiction or video, uh, sorry, interactive fiction or gaming. Um, there are lots of problems with that, and I think there are, um, are some more promising ways uh, uh, that have been recently used in other branches of um, aesthetics that we might uh, use to define what video games are. So a more historical or intentional approach that video games can't be defined in terms of their characteristics, rather they're more of a tradition, um, a technological tradition that comes in various forms and is in a dialogue uh, with itself um, over time. So those historical intentional definitions are quite popular these days within you know, the definition of art, for example, or the definition of poetry. So in terms of uh, virtual reality, I think what the latter stuff shares uh, with the earlier stuff is that I haven't changed and my method is still pretty much the same. I'm quite analytic and I take seriously um, popular works and I want to account for what we actually find, what we're doing and how we're playing and viewing and so forth rather than starting from some sort of formal theoretical basis and then trying to shoehorn video games or virtual reality into that. I think it's more important to actually start with a thing. And I think I'm lucky in, in both cases because I actually like video games. I play a fair bit of them and I enjoy virtual reality as well, right? And without that, that sort of um, um, enjoyment or appreciation for the form, I don't think you can really uh, properly account for it. Like you couldn't be a philosopher of music without having an appreciation of music, right? And enjoying music. Yeah, I I would I would ask in um so when you say that 
you w- you went back to your concept, uh, your definition of video games from 10 years ago. Um, were there also things that happen in the video game world? Since you, you play it, you're probably in touch with it. New technologies, new media, or just new games, new gameplay. Something happened in this world as well that made you rethink the definition? Or do you think, would you say it was more of a methodological project? It was sort of a, it came about through my further research into video games and thinking that there are various problems with that definition. And also, you know, I've slightly shifted away from this notion of fictionalism about video games towards more of a, I want to sort of call it a picturalist view of what video games now are. Um, uh, I don't think video games have changed especially. I think they're still pretty much what they, they were um, a decade and a half ago. You know, they're more glitzy and the graphics have improved and so forth, but I think the forms are still are still there. There have been surprising games. I think in particular, um, you know, multiplayer interactive games are now much more sophisticated than they once were. Um, you know, in, in 2009, uh, things were pretty rudimentary in terms of um, multiplayer online online gaming at that time. Especially because <laughs> also of internet connections, uh, yeah. speeds, everything, right? Yeah, I think that that's changed a lot. Um, uh, and just the way things are set up to have sort of um, hubs where people gather and then they'll play games within them. So things like Rec Room, where everybody can just join in a virtual world and then you can spin off into play various games or just, you know, uh, interact socially. Those styles of things weren't really available at the time. I think there was this one, once this thing called um, micro, um, PlayStation Home, which tried to do that and, you know, just really, really failed in a big way and disappeared rather quickly, right? But, um, you know, there are multiple forms of those, that, that type of thing these days. Uh, one one question uh, in connecting, you know, video games and virtual reality is that back in the art of video games, uh, down the line, uh, you refine the definition of video games as games in a strong and a weak sense. And uh, the strong sense, uh, meaning the game provides for rule and objective gaming, and the weak relating to free play exploration and what you call back then imaginative involvement a feature of fictions. Actually, I really like this idea of video games as virtual fictions. And and here's a question. Uh, then what distinguishes video games in this weak sense from VRs in general? Okay, so what's the difference between those two things? I, I, I think I want to see VR as a, a form of a medium. Um, and it's a pictorial medium. It's a way of depicting things or um, showing the player um, certain things. And typically it's environments and um, objects and other people and, and that style of thing. And within that medium, you can do lots of things. You can achieve lots of things. You can have social meetings. Uh, I taught a paper last year in which I attempted to hold it in VR. It was a complete disaster because I could never get everybody on VR at the same time. I remember uh, that during the <laughs> pandemics, people were meeting you know, officially in Red Dead Redemption 2, like <laughs> for business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, try, I tried to do that in, like actually in VR with the headsets and everything. Yeah, you know, and I can see how it could work in the future, but it's, it's pretty buggy at the moment. You can do lots of things in VR. You can play video games and you can meet and, and so forth. Uh, whereas video games, I think, are not so much a medium. Um, they're more like a collection of practices. Um, you know, so on the one hand, there's this imaginative play, and that has lots of different venues. Um, you know, the most obvious venue is when children 
you know, play with each other in an imaginative sense. They say, you know, pretend the floor is lava and so forth. And then there is this very structured, you know, um, uh, rule and objective-based gameplay. So Bernard Suits has a theory of, of um, this as well, really. Uh, Bernard Suits thinks that there is this sort of free play and, and free imagined play, but there's also, um, you know, these Suitsian games, which are very sort of formalized things. And he's got a definition of those. And I think that distinction still holds uh, and that video games can achieve both and that VR can be the venue for those things. But there are lots of other venues, you know, um, just basic um, 3D graphics, uh, you know, conventional 2D screens, um, you know, that's uh, still a venue for those things as well. Um, it's actually interesting how those two fields, they, you know, contamine each other because, uh, of course, there's nothing specifically about the game that makes of it a specific medium for playing. I mean, people still use it for diverse other stuff uh, and not exactly precisely play it as it's meant to. It happens, I don't know, with speed running. It happens with people using yeah. games for VR and and all those kind of stuff. Yeah, this is one of the problems with definitions is that it's very hard to pin video games down because they're so heterogeneous. Um, they're just so differed and varied. You might find a single game and it's got loads of ways of interacting with it. And as you say, people can play against the rules, they can counterplay, they can find new ways of interacting with the, the object. So Elden Ring, right? Um, seeing speed, speed gaming, speed runs of that is just things that I would never expect that people are doing in that, in that game world and bizarre stuff, right? You know, bizarre ways to play these things. Another, um, thing is the increased, uh, use of games to, you know, play through and offer narratives, um, uh, that you might post on YouTube or, or Twitch streaming or, or whatever, you know, that, that style of thing. So, um, game, um, audiences are now you know are quite a significant um part of gaming people who don't actually play but they just watch i i remember actually back in the day when i was playing uh, if i if i recall it correctly never winter nights too and there was a huge online community and people were playing it like a role-playing game so it's, it was not the same game anymore it was like people building up stories and sharing stories collectively uh, not like in World of Warcraft, because uh, what it seemed to me was that people enjoyed building stories together. So yeah. a little bit like, I don't know, GTA, what people do to GTA nowadays. Yeah, there's some very structured games that don't allow you to build those sort of uh, participative narratives and involve everybody in the story. I've got to admit that I've been playing a lot of DayZ in the last um, couple of years. And it's a wretched game in a lot of ways because it's hard to get into it as an initial player. But once you really know how things work, you can begin to build stories and you can meet people. And, um, you know, I had a private server and, and different clans would base, base themselves around different parts of the map. And we would have wars and uh, there would be subterfuge and so forth. And there were some really interesting stories that came out of that. Um, of course, there, there were people who weren't willing to get into the role play aspect of it. Uh, and they were just, you know... Um, just try and loot you all the time and uh, just be annoying. And there were other people who would respect things, you know, and, and respect the rules that you would put in place and try and interact with you. And I actually I, I, uh, made a Brazilian friend on, on that game, even though he had no English whatsoever, and it made it really <laughs> difficult. I just have to translate every little thing, right? And um, it, it was immense fun. He really didn't trust me uh, when we first <laughs> met each other. 
but eventually we got into this trusting relationship. It was great fun. Um, still, um, Professor, I would I would think that um, I have a hard time getting around the the screen uh, as really as a definition. So the the fact that the video is always there, um, I am not sure if if um, for example, I'm I'm just thinking because I started playing Nuzlocking in Pokemon, and there are some crazy categories. I, I'm I'm not sure if you're all aware of what Nuzlocking Pokemon is. It basically right. the the game is so easy. You just make um you just add rules that are not in the game. You have to you know adhere to them um, personally, and. Yeah. Even some of the categories, they also come with a narrative. So the rules, they, they are given because there's a certain narrative. And there are some apocalyptic narratives, such as, for example, a bomb exploded and every water and flying Pokemon died. So you can never use water and, and flying Pokemon because of the self-imposed narrative. Um which maybe in a way adds a dimension of non-screen gaming that you're adding to it. But still, I mean, they're all played on a screen. I don't know this. Does the screen has something to do with the definition? Is it a hard object in the definition that we can get around? Or is it less important in your view? Uh, I wouldn't say the screen specifically, but I'd say the screen and the algorithms and program behind it that produce the artifact that you're interacting with. You know, and there are certain hard things in there. Um, you can't fly in Daisy, right? You just can't scoot around unless um, you've got some sort of mod. Um, and that's like that's a, a fundamental part of the game rules. But there are all these normative um, things that are um, external to the game itself. And those are particularly prevalent in really open games like DayZ, where you um, negotiate what the rules are. You might have a Discord server and you say, well, here's what we're going to do. Um, you can fight at the north, um, northwestern airbase, right? Or is it northeastern? Uh, you can fight there and, and nowhere else. Um, and you can't sit outside with a sniper rifle and just pick people off in there. You have to actually be with, within the, uh, the area. But those kinds of external norms are pretty common in older and really formalized games as well, as well. So, you know, Quake and Doom and, uh, you know, all those first-person shooters, uh, there are uh, external norms such as don't camp in a hallway or, you know, don't exploit glitches and, you know, all sorts of things that will be policed um, informally. You know, you see a guy doing this sort of stuff, you'll tell everybody else. And you know, um, It's just that uh, people like to use um, video games, I think, to sort of build these narratives, um, you know, to not only to build ludic content like gaming content but to actually build a narrative a story into the uh the world that they're interacting in yeah i think it's it's just um inevitable that this this thing that we have gaming is going to lead to these participative stories that we tell yeah and i believe that this narrative storytelling aspect plays a significant role in fostering potential connections between video games and uh, predominantly far-right political ideologies, right? You know, that's that's a problem with gaming these days. And um, to some extent, I've become a little bit soured on, on gaming. And I now avoid a lot of the social spaces in which uh, gaming is discussed and so forth. 
uh, because it's it's just so toxic there and there's um, a lot of horrible stuff that goes on. Um, uh, a lot of first-person shooters involve that kind of toxic behavior in the game itself. You know, you see a lot of trolling and, and so forth. And you might wonder whether there is this stereotypical um, gamer who is a young man, he's on, he's on the right, um, you know, maybe for the first time thinking about politics. Um, and I've seen some horrible stuff uh, come from that particular uh, group. Yeah. It's, it's not something, you know, the politics of games is not something I've really thought about to a, a huge extent. Apart from I've written some things about uh, video game violence and the politics inherent in that. Um, you know, that's gone off the boil now, that uh, particular debate. But I think um, us as we as academics are going to have to deal more um, seriously with some of the political stuff that's happened over the past five years, especially in terms of uh, video game culture. Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious about this um, interaction you said, for example, with people uh, within the game, so in days, playing Daisy, and you have the profiles, you have people who are annoying, you have people who are aggressive. Um, I wonder how this. Um, uh, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to bring this discussion back to a boil, but is there also something in the game um, that could? Um, Create, create those kind of behaviors or because also are they completely um, detached from reality Did, do we also have those kind of behaviors are those avatars in which we're doing things in the games that we wouldn't be doing in reality um, I mean th this was very interesting to me this this kind of trolls you had in DayZ for example what, what are those who are those people what are those behaviors yeah so um, Daisy courts that kind of behavior. The entire game world is set up uh, so that you can have that exploitative, griefing, trolling style of play. And it does, but I think it's making often a political comment about the, the state of nature, right? You're dumped on the beach by yourself and you've somehow got to survive. And you also have to somehow deal with other people who are, you know, for the large, most part, anonymous to you. Uh, you don't know who they are. You don't know whether they can be trusted and so forth. And so that's one of the most engaging parts of that game is when you begin to trust them and you try and negotiate a relationship. And then, you know, two hours into that relationship, they shoot you in the back of the head. <laughs> and, it's, and it's for nothing. Um, so Daisy, I think, courts it in its, uh, its stereotypical gameplay, that kind of uh, behavior. But then you look at a game like Minecraft, which tries to exclude that, that kind of behavior because it doesn't allow and it's, you know, basic makeup for that trolling behavior. There is a certain amount of trolling that goes on in Minecraft, right? But it, it um, rather more encourages um, uh, peaceful cooperation. And, uh, of course, you can see who's online and, and you know, uh, you can identify a person and um, you're often playing with your friends anyway. So it's, uh, yeah, the wider question of... Um, does the, the person that we play within the video game reflect who we are externally? Um, you know, that's a really deep question and it's hard to answer as a philosopher. You know, you probably have to have some psychologist doing an experimental study on that. But my own impression is that I'm not sure it really does. Um, most of my friends are middle class uh, academics or professionals or so forth. And we play all sorts of violent games and we're horrid to each other. Right? Absolutely terrible people uh, in the game world. 
but I, I trust these people and I really like these people and, you know, fantastic. Professor Tevner, just to get a little bit more, uh, you know, philosophical. And the idea is that you make, you know, this strong argument that VR is a picturing medium, uh, yeah. and developing the idea of VR as presenting a solution for problems arising, uh, I think from historical attempts at remediating the experience of space and then uh, all the way back to the invention of linear perspective and etc. But we know that, for instance, a proof of success of a mimetic painter back then uh, could be measured by the capacity of the artist in hiding from the observer the means by which she or he uh, operated the illusion. Yeah. But here's the thing. In actual VRs, and especially in the case of video games, uh, players always find ways to take advantage of the technological hacks offered by distinct media, like joysticks. And, uh, you know, they, they, they seem to provide uh, for quicker responses than haptic gloves or, I don't know, any movement capturing device. So people favor joysticks, at least for now. And uh, what it means is that differently from most, uh, from, from, I don't know, most of the past passive mediums, like painting, VRs allow, allows for levels of interaction that makes it difficult to ignore the medium. So uh, while we interact with the real world in a natural way, as gamers, we know there are elements to the game, like VR's physical tools, the joysticks and whatnot, uh, and which no matter how technically good they are in hiding the interactions with our bodies and connecting this flux of information between engine and body, they can still be felt and used as media. Uh, what I mean is that it seems to me if VR presents a solution to remediation, it does so at the possible expense of breaking the illusion. So would you think these kinds of breaks away the previous traditions of remediating the experience of space? Okay, so uh, a few things I might say uh, um, to that. The first is that I don't think um, the history of art is entirely taken up with this production of illusion. You know, there are clear cases like Trump Lawyer um, where uh, artists want to produce things that you might momentarily actually confuse for reality. But a lot of art and a lot of really special art um, is doing two things at once. Um, it's portraying the world or portraying a subject. And also it's um, acknowledging how the media is actually doing that, how it's achieving that. So if you go to a... Um, um, an art gallery and you, you look at a Rembrandt picture, for example, uh, you, you stand back and there's this enormous sense of the lifelike nature of, um, the subject. Uh, it's, it's almost like you're standing in front of this person, um, and you get a real sense of their character, you know, the type of person they are. But if you move up to the, the picture, you begin to see that this thing is made of quite crude brushstrokes. Um, and that it's the, the nature of the media becomes more and more evident as, as you, you move towards it. And therefore, it takes on this extra, you know, almost a miracle of the artist has managed to convey this lifelike sense out of this quite rough medium, right? And it's, it's almost magical, right, that they're able to do this. And uh, that's part of his achievement, I guess, in, in producing those style of paintings. Um, you know, lots of artists do this. They they foreground the media as much as they um, produce the illusion of the, the person before you. So second, I would think that, yes, you're, you're probably right, I think, that um, video games and VR are different to these traditional media because they invite or they allow the, the, the viewer or the participant to actually interact um, with the work. 
and that this might make the medium um, more accessible to them. And in fact, they can change things. Um, so they can exploit things or they're invited to, to mess things around and, and so forth. You know, in a game like Little Big Planet, which is a little old now, you know, you're given the tools of game construction and the game itself so you can make your own levels and you can do creative things. Uh, and that's not uh, the case with most previous art. Although I'm, I'm sure there are cases of previous art where um, the user has participated with or used the medium itself um, and modified it in interesting ways. I can imagine people cutting up videos to make new video projects, um, you know, or rearranging um, novels or so forth to produce new work. So there's always been this sort of modification of, of, of um, the medium in previous art, but not to the extent that there is an interactive works. Uh, so I, I, you know, interactivity as a term was not particularly popular uh, at least 10 years ago because, you know, there are these initial claims that video games are far more interactive than other things. But when you expect it, inspect it, you know, previous um, styles of art were also interactive. They, they necessitated that you took on this active participative role um, in understanding the work. But um, I think genuinely video games are more interactive than most other media because um, the medium you know, is available to you to interact with. And the norms of the medium um, ask you to do so. You know, it's not, not only can you, uh, the video game says, here I am, you know, change me, mold me or, you know, um, interact with me. But again, there's uh, a difference, right, yeah. between you interacting with a game and the game yeah. being a medium for interaction between humans. Okay, it's yeah, like yeah. The first sense seems to be more limited, and the second, you know, you get different kinds of narratives and etc. Yeah, yeah. So once yeah, once you throw um, different people, you know, um, you know, co-participants uh, into the same world or the same game, you're going to get all sorts of really interesting things. But again, you, you can probably find those things in previous artworks, such as uh, happenings, which you know were popular in the 1960s. Of, people getting together in a place and then doing their own thing. And out of that, you get some sort of um, performative artwork uh, or, you know, theater sports, even is a sort of a commonplace example. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the problem with saying anything uh, firm about the arts is that there's such a variety. And again, um, artists like to defy expectations or what philosophers or critics will say about them. Okay. So, you know, um, they'll, you know, just reject artistic tradition. And do something odd. And professor, still even in this in this relation of VR and video games, Guilherme and I were discussing um, the episode of Resident Evil played on VR uh, that that you mentioned, which yeah. which uh, it, it proved to be a fascinating example to us in the sense that could VR even make some things unplayable some video games unplayable in the sense that you can uh, I, i never played the, the resident even myself but i have a friend who tried and play uh resident evil 7 vr and he's he said it was unplayable it's just too afraid of moving forward so the did the media also clash in this sense i think you me also played something else isn't it Yeah, I, I actually had not the same experience, but you know, something that I could relate with alien isolation, but not in VR. Well, so, so this is the other question about VR is in what sense is it more realistic than previous kinds of um, uh, pic pictures or art? 
And I think in the book, I, I discuss the ways in which it psychologically engages us in ways that other works necessarily don't, you know, they don't, they can't. Um, and one is in, in the sense of the bodily presence in a space and this, um, precari- precarity or this, um, sense of, uh, being vulnerable to what's going on, right? And that's the reason I couldn't play Resident Evil is because I really felt that I was vulnerable to these things always around me. Um, another, you know, this is um, pretty well done, um, even in the experimental literature with like the Planck experiment. Uh, so that's an early experiment in which VR was used to, you know, you show, you put a sort of a, um, a room in VR and it's got um, a, a hole in the middle and a plank around the outside. And, you know, you get people to sort of walk in there and you can measure um, their heart rate and so forth. And it shows that they're actually genuinely anxious or afraid of, of that space. So there is a popular example of this called, you know, Richie's Plank Experience. And I can't, I really struggle to get out on that plank. And it's just such a simple thing to do, right? Um, it, I should be able to do it, but I can't. And when they introduce further challenges, it becomes even more worrying. Uh, there's a box at the bottom of the, um, the elevator where you can uh, call, call spiders by doing a particular range of movements. And I found out how to do that. And uh, I would just instruct people to do this, right? Oh, what happens if you press that certain number of times and all of a sudden there are spiders and they're just screaming and, and, <laughs> and don't want to go any further? You know, there are lots of uh, – that's one of the real virtues of um, VR is that it involves you in this, this deep psychological sense. I, I think that one of those, you know, uh, big problems of that is that people usually think of VR uh, as a mimetic picturing medium. Uh, like the VR is gonna represent reality just like outside. But the main point is that not necessarily so, right? I mean, you could exponentiate sensations of fear until you get a heart attack. Are you, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but not only fear, but other things as well. People usually think that through VR, you could visit, for instance, MoMA and, and it's gonna be kind of the same experience as visiting it in reality. But this is limiting. You could do yeah. so much more. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, don't think VR really um, amounts to a, 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 an experience of reality. You know, I'm really unconvinced by that. You know, it's very limited sensory channel. Mostly it's like the, the, the screen in front of you and the, the headphones. And, and that's about the, the limit of the sense of spatial involvement you have. We have all these other senses that aren't at all engaged. And all the time during VR that we're aware that we are ourselves and we are in the headset. Um, and I, I agree that, you know, there's also this assumption that VR is meant to um, move closer and closer to reality until you can't tell it to a part. But there are lots of lots of ways that we could use VR in which it, it heightens our senses or it provides some um, experience of things that are impossible, you know, impossible experiences like the traveling through the universe and getting a sense of the size of things, uh, you know, traveling down to you know the atom and then whatever. Or, uh, you know, moving through spaces that are impossible spaces. You know, there are lots of those sort of um, um, game worlds in which um, you move through an area and it becomes this sort of weird area that doesn't really fit with the previous space that you're in. I think VR could be exploited in lots of interesting ways um, to achieve those those kinds of ends. Uh, it, this is very interesting because uh, we had an interview previously with T, uh, Ting Nguyen. And uh, he was, you know, mentioning how he thinks of video games as composing this library of practicality. 
And uh, and then the idea is that through VR and games, you have you you can have a library of practicality of impossible human feats. It's like, because you yeah because you extend the possibilities uh, to to go much you know further than what you can accomplish in reality, right? It's not only yeah. a library of things that you can do uh, yeah. for real. Yeah, so I know what I can do for real. I want to do other things. I want to fly around and so forth. Yeah, or just you know, um, not only new abilities, but new weird places, or you know, stretching the sense of what a place is and how we might inhabit it. You know, those sorts of things are hardly experienced. I think. Yeah, just one thing. This I am currently also working a lot with sports and 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 crowds and masses. And I think it's that's an interesting question because um, the question of VR is that in a way you have the bodily experience as if you um, you were living this um, this um, experience you would have, for example, in a stadium crowd, but you're also isolated, completely isolated. Um, I wonder if even those crowd experiences could be reproduced in VR as well. And to what extent? Yeah, so the, the sense of co-presence, I think there is, uh, is the interesting thing that you're directing to. Um, like this is one of the potentials of VR as well, is that I spent a lot of time, and you probably did in Zoom meetings like this over the past couple of years, and uh, even presenting at conferences, I've done it via Zoom. And usually for me, it's in the middle of the middle of the night because of where I have to live in the world. And they, they it always strikes me as fundamentally... Um, uh, dissatisfying, not to have these other people there and not to be able to be in their bodily co-presence, right? I'm, I'm writing something at the moment about the virtualization of education. And I think that one of the things that has happened in education in the last couple of years, particularly because of COVID and the adoption of virtual technologies, is that we've lost the sense of uh, the dance between student and teacher that, you know, often has to happen in a physical place, you know. It's very different talking to a 2D screen and actually, you know, leaning into a person literally and having, you know, them bodily react to you. Uh, you know, philosophy at its best is when you've got these people who are engaged with each other, not just informationally, but as a sort of a corporate entity almost, right? Yeah, the gestures, the... Yeah, I do... You know, we had a... Our professor, we have a Kant course here at Cornell this semester in the German department in the first class. The professor was sick, so it started through Zoom, and then it went back uh, to in-person. And when we when when it went back, we were like, oh my God, this is so different. This other thing that happens is there's that certain politics, you know, of uh, in-person um uh, discussion or interaction that I'm responsible for what I'm saying because I'm right in front of you, you know, and you're more responsible for how you're acting. And so we have this contract that, you know, sort of breaks down online, I think, to a certain extent. And also as a student, I remember being a student that often in a class situation, you feel that threat, you feel threatened, you know, because uh, you want to say something, but you don't know if you're going to sound like an idiot, right? And it's a really hard thing to push past that. And, and, you know, online you can just sit in the back or turn off your screen or mute yourself, right? And it's no longer a problem. You can't escape the classroom without walking out, right? Okay. I, I had a student of mine, I had a student of mine sleeping during a class. He forgot <laughs> to turn, you know, yeah. to turn off the camera. <laughs> yeah. So 
so I think um you know the virtualization of education has uh, it's it's fortunate it's conducive to certain interests uh, but I think it loses a lot of what education uh, has previously been and I find myself even though I'm not a conservative at all I find myself very conservative about those styles of things that we have to retain a lot of the, the culture and that virtuality sort of threatens a lot of that um, professor, also one last thing we wanted to touch upon, uh, I think it was yesterday, the Olympics just announced they're going to have an esports series. I don't know if you saw that. Oh. And, um, one, one Pokemon influencer I follow, he just posted, well, it seems like I'm an Olympian now. <laughs> and, uh, and it was also actually a huge debate in, in Brazil in january with the new government we actually Guilherme and i we published a small um a very small article about um video games and esports and i just wonder if if that's also something that crossed your mind if you have also anything to uh to to say about this relation between sports esports video games Well, virtual reality should, you know, if people are hesitant to call video games virtual reality, I guess, because you can play them sitting on a couch and with your thumbs. And, and virtual reality, things like uh, Beat, oh, Beat Saber, you know, those very active games um, can be extraordinarily, like, physical. You get a sweat up. and uh, So maybe that'll ameliorate some of the concerns that people have about the non-physicality of video games. Actually, I have a student who's just in the, process of writing up her thesis about public attitudes towards video games in New Zealand. And she's coming up with lots of these sort of similar uh, themes. You know, it's, it's not a sport. It's um, involves violence or it's dumbing people down or, it's, you know, so forth. All those sorts of traditional worries that there are. And it's particularly important. This is not an academic question entirely because, you know, in New Zealand, we're a marginally, you know, normally socialist country. And so the government in, invests money in, into the sports both in terms of um, professional sports and uh, recreation. So should the government be investing money into esports right now, given that it's, you know, an important thing for an increasing young number of young people? Yeah, that, yeah that's exactly the discussion in Brazil because um, the, the new minister was actively working against investing in esports. And yeah, then yeah. precisely the question, well, it's just a huge thing right now and um you know who's gonna put the money in it if it if it's not this the, the ministry of sports yeah it's, it's you know that money's gonna have to come from somewhere else as well and i'm sure you know the rugby union in this country uh rugby's an enormous country <laughs> north sport in new zealand and it's very different to esports and i imagine there'll be a lot of resistance from that culture which so dominates um sporting culture in new zealand but you know uh curiously uh the criticism Uh, on video games uh, being also esports uh, equals in many ways the criticism about video games not being art. It's like, you know, yeah. they're entertainment. And then, you know, because entertainment, they can't be art or they can't be sports or because they constitute an industry. And uh, I don't know, the, the whole idea, um, uh, Nicolau and I were talking about that, uh, seems like like a deja vu yeah and I, i expect the real explanation of that is going to be sociological rather than philosophical right you've got these established cultures and here comes this interloper 
which is beginning to destroy this. You know, people are really worrying in New Zealand about how fewer people are playing rugby these days. Uh, and, you know, um, because they're all sitting at home playing video games, right? I'm not, not sure if that happens in Brazil with uh, soccer, with football. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a threat to our traditional way of life, I guess. Well, that's something interesting because at least in Brazil we have uh, FIFA and especially FIFA. So, you know, we have also great teams of FIFA and football, but you don't have a great rugby game. So I think... No, that's the problem, yeah. Yeah. You lose touch with the sport in general. Hmm. Well, as well as in New Zealand, we're a small country, you know, six million people. Um, our culture tends to be imported. So if people are playing sports and the games in this country, it's, it's FIFA or basketball or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I think the closest thing you might have is Madden, but I know you might have strong feelings against <laughs> no, no, it. Very different. <laughs> very different game. <laughs> uh, professor, last thing, uh, very quickly. Game recommendations are something you're playing, something that is in your mind that you would like to share? Oh gosh, this is terrible. Uh, terrible to admit that I've been playing Minecraft a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any particular reason or just got hooked? Uh, I've got a realm with some friends and uh, we just get together and build things. Uh, a couple of my friends have built this enormous ridiculous auto sorter that collects all the various kinds of objects together and we're currently digging a big hole um, it's called the big stupid hole and it's just a per inverted pyramid down to bedrock okay and we've been digging this for four months now right we're almost finished <laughs> and that, you know at the same time as we're doing this uh, we're also just you know just laughing up and telling jokes and, and stuff like that yeah it was a lot of fun hopefully hopefully it was useful what i said <laughs> Absolutely. It was it was a pleasure having you and thank you for your time. And yeah, I think we'll keep in touch with the with the next steps. All right. This was Joystick Philosophy bringing only the hot stuff for you. Thank you for tuning in with us today. And if you enjoy the show, please spread the word. Also, we'd love to hear your comments. You can find us on Twitter at joystickphil, written joystick, P-H-I-L, and also at Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. Have a good one, and until the next episode.